You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we sit down with Kelly Cohn, who is deeply immersed in the Silicon Valley startup community, having grown multiple startups from conception to over 100 million valuations. Kelly has broad technology experience, but specializes in guiding robotics, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, and computer vision companies from concept to launch. On today's show, you'll learn about how the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley career paths have changed and What's different in their backgrounds now than before? What skills or knowledge is it going to take to be a successful venture capitalist in the future? What does it look like to be a fundable pre-seed hardware company? What are the two largest issues that early-stage robotics and artificial intelligence startups face? And what is humanized AI? And much, much more. You are listening to Silicon Valley by The Investors Podcast, where your host, Sean Flynn, interviews famous entrepreneurs and business leaders in tech. Discover how money is made in Silicon Valley and where tech is going before it gets there. Kelly, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. It's my absolute pleasure. Now, Kelly, you have this amazing, interesting background. Can you tell us the career path that led you to become a venture capitalist? Well, that's a flattering description of my background. <laughs> Actually, so I started off, I'm from Denver, and I started off in telecommunications. And I worked at a company called Level 3. When I left there, I was working as the product manager for virtual private networks. I left and went and got my MBA at, at Oxford. And while I was out there, I had the pleasure of meeting the founder of Polycom, Brian Hinman. And he was starting a new stealth mode Wi-Fi hardware company. And he asked me to move to Silicon Valley and be the first hire. So that was what I did. Came out here, worked with them, stayed with them through over 100 employees, $100 million valuation, and eight products launched, six in market. And that really helped me understand what it took to build a hardware product from scratch, particularly one with very deeply complicated software componentry. And after that, I left and I moved into a little garage with five AI PhDs. And I like to point out that it's a garage because we had to actually hang lights and fans because it wasn't attached to the house. So we were building a, I like to call it a flying robot because that sounds better, but yes, it's a drone, as you might suspect. <laughs> um, and that was actually called Lily, quite a famous and infamous uh, story behind that. So I stayed with them through over 100 employees. And for them, I was running marketing, PR, sales, customer support. And the thing that I take most pride in, their beta testing program. There is nothing more complicated or terrifying than running a beta testing program for an autonomous flying robot for consumers. <laughs> so after that, I kind of looked around Silicon Valley and I realized that there was a tremendous amount of talent in understanding the aspects of go-to-market for software, but really not that much in hardware. So I started a consulting firm that specialized in early stage deep tech go-to-market and helping companies understand what it took to get from an idea to launch. And it was during that time that I was actually mentoring a company out of Bolt and that my now partner happened to be invested in. And she spent about six months trying to get me to be CMO at one of her firms. And then eventually one day over lunch, she said, actually, you know what? Why don't we just start a firm together? And so that was the origin of Grit Venture. You'd mentioned the word deep tech in that. What is the definition of deep tech? There isn't one. I guess a broad idea, but I think right now, you know, it's really more around artificial intelligence and that being based in any product. But it can also mean, you know, frontier tech, space. Everyone has a bit of a different definition. 
So how is it different being on the entrepreneur side versus being now on the investor side? It's different in a lot of ways. The first thing is that you actually have to really make this transition from having one company be your baby, be this thing that you think about all day, every day, to having seven, 10 babies, and really having to bounce through all of them and think through that and remove yourself a bit emotionally than in comparison to when you're in-house. And also, you're not actually doing the work. You can give them advice, you can give them structure, help them, but in the end, it is their company. And that's something I think you know, we need to remember as venture capitalists. Is that kind of frustrating for you, for someone that it sounds like you really like to be hands-on and in the trenches? Not really, but that's because we've been very, very careful about picking our founders in our portfolio. They're people that we spend a lot of time with founders before we invest. And so all the people that we're working with are people that we have seen them take direction and run with it. For instance, one of our portfolio companies, I built their beta program. And then watching them execute that has actually been more of a delight than anything else. I'm actually glad I'm not the one executing it. <laughs> so were there any struggles that you faced while doing these beta programs or beta testing that you'd like to share? So I think the way to think about beta testing is, I'm sure this question will be cut because I'm going to get really nerdy on this, but you essentially the goal is to take every use case, every single one that you can think of, break it down into its metrics and its componentry, and then align it with gates that through which you move. And that's how you know when you move to the next step of hardware. So there are basically two buckets. There's a problem that you are slowly moving closer to reaching your metric goal. And there's a problem that you have no idea what's going on. So with Lily, for instance, we were moving closer and closer to our metrics. Everything was going well. But for some reason, the drone would just toilet bowl randomly. <laughs> and we didn't know how to fix that. And when we are diligencing companies, those are actually really the things we look out for are the problems that they don't know how to fix. So then you've had all this experience hands-on in hardware companies. Is this very similar to the other VCs in the Valley? Or what's kind of the career path that most of them have taken? And has that changed over the years? Yeah, actually, I think we're in a really interesting time. The original, the OG VCs, if you will, of which my, my partner was, most of them were operators and engineers. And it was because it was this time of telco and deep tech, and these companies really understood their technology. Anyone that was creating a company at that time understood their technology, but they really needed help in understanding how to build it into a company. So that was how you saw so many operators. Then we moved into the mobile social gaming wave. And that was really when we saw a lot of financiers join the business. And so because it, it was a different time, it was about customer acquisition costs and virality quotient. And those were the things that were more important. As we move back into this era of artificial intelligence and deep tech, I think you're seeing the reemergence of the operator engineer model. And especially in the very early stage, which are the people I spend most of my time with, many of us are operators and engineers. Do you see in the future a lot of the investment bankers or the economic majors moving away from VC? No, I think that, first of all, there's still always a lot of SaaS. Not everything is deep tech. But also, after you get past pre-seed, seed, series A, it really does become more about financial tinkering. And so I think they'll probably just move later stage. Then what skills will be the most valuable for a VC to have in the future to be successful? Well, I think that in the early stages, the skills that are most helpful are the ability to understand how to build a company and specifically to understand that from experience. So when you're saying the early stages, the first two years of a company's growth, more or less? Or? It's a really difficult question. 
one of the big things that we're seeing, particularly in the robotic space, is that many of the companies have, are spinning out of labs and have gone through many, many years of working and DARPA grants before they even spin out. What's a DARPA grant? It's a government defense grant. And they're actually they're really great because they're kind of loose. They don't give you that much direction in what you have to do. So it really gives these guys years to explore. A company that wants a DARPA grant, most grants, from my understanding, take six months, a year, paperwork to fill out. What's kind of the, the process for hardware companies? Because it sounds like it must be very capital intensive then. Well, so two different things. There's two different types of companies, and I'll get into the second one later. But the first type of company is one that spins out of lab. And because of that, they're used to writing grants and they have the time and it's actually their job to write this grant. So they're getting paid to do that. It's not just that they're burning venture capital money while they're doing it. By the time they spin out, they usually stop writing grants because of how time consuming it is. So then the people that are used to writing grants, do you notice that some of those players kind of get switched once they go to a spinoff or a company in the, in the sense that maybe their mindset's not there to grow a company. Maybe they are more researchers in the lab and they need that sales entrepreneur crazy guy that, you know, used to sell houses and use cars. This is a topic that comes up a lot. The answer that I give is I try to not tell an entrepreneur if he should be the CEO or not. What I try and do instead is ask him what he wants to do all day. And so I say, you know, do you want to work on product and innovation and think about what the next thing's going to be in terms of the technology for your company? Because if you do, that's a CTO. If you want to spend all day making sure you don't run out of money and talking to people like me, then that's a CEO. And so I'm not going to tell you what to do, but just decide how you want to spend your day. How does that dynamic structure then work when this group of engineers that have worked together in a lab for last year or two now have to find an outside person to come in and kind of almost take advice or orders from the person. I think you just have to be very careful. And oftentimes, I think what works really nicely is to actually bring in an interim person. And so an interim high-level person that you're working with for six months, and then they get promoted to CEO. That could be one way, like a try before you buy, if you will. Tell me, what is the investment thesis or focus of your venture fund, Grit Ventures? Grit Ventures, we focus on industrial robotics. So very specifically, B2B. We don't have anything wandering around your home and just solving these very large scale tasks that are needed. Kelly, question for you. Why is right now the time for robotics? It's an amazing time to be a robotics venture capitalist firm. There are four big changes that happened in the world that have made robotics this enormous opportunity at this exact moment. So the first one is the cost of componentry has gone down dramatically. People think about robots, they generally think about these huge machines that you see in an auto manufacturing plant that cost $250,000 to a million dollars. And that's simply not the case anymore. We tend to see robots costing between $4,000 and $15,000. So that's a huge change, right, in terms of being able to start a company with much less capital. The other thing that's been really interesting is robotics as a service. It's an entirely new business model that most people are starting to adopt. And I think almost everyone in our portfolio has that model where rather than actually trying to sell a robot, which if you've ever sold hardware is a really painful thing because the next year you have to figure out what is the new interesting thing you're going to sell. Whereas as a service, you have monthly recurring revenue and multi-year contracts. It's a really beautiful thing. The other thing that changed, and this point can be debatable, but ROS 2.0, the robotic operating system, was an open source. And this is largely used by people maybe didn't come out of a lab and have a long time to work on their code and 
build proprietary code base. It's open source that allows them to basically cut off two years of development time because they have a platform on, on which to build. And then the last thing, and I think this is probably the most interesting thing for people not deeply entrenched in this space, is that we are seeing massive labor shortages across the world. And these are labor shortages in older and traditional industries. And this is causing a radical change in how quickly people can go to market in the sense that startups used to have to have their very first client be a mom and pop and then build their way up to the big guys. But when you're dealing with labor shortages, it's the big guys that are feeling the pain the most. So these small little five-person teams living in garages are actually having the biggest names in their industry be their very first client. Now, why is there that labor shortage right now? Because in my mind, everyone is so scared that robots are going to take their jobs, whereas you're telling me right now there's no one in these jobs for the robots to replace. We focus on jobs that we call the three Ds, dirty, dull, and dangerous. And so they're jobs that human beings don't want to do and arguably shouldn't be doing. And we tend to not look at companies trying to do replacement because there is so much labor shortage across the board in construction, agriculture, that it doesn't make sense to not go after that low-hanging fruit. Grit Ventures itself, what stage companies do you look at? Are they mostly early stage? Grit Ventures is a pre-seed company. That means the very first money that you take in after your angel, angels, incubators, accelerators. And then the very first time you take in institutional funding, that's a pre-seed round. And so for us, that actually means something very different than what people might think. Pre-seed used to be a PowerPoint, just an idea with maybe one guy and he doesn't even have a team. In order to even enter our funnel of consideration for investment, you have to have a working prototype and a pilot that is at least in the works. Any of these companies that are in your funnel that you've looked at, have you had any stories or instances where maybe their products completely backfired on demonstration? Or, or do you yourself have any personal stories of just something failing when it shouldn't have failed? The thing that I would say is, so because I've run beta testing, I literally, it is my job to try and break the robot upon demo, to figure out how to make it wander off the happy path. Because when you're doing a demo for investors or customers, you're always trying to make sure that they don't ask you to do anything that you haven't planned for. Because oftentimes, I mean, it is a prototype. It doesn't really know how to do that. And so I remember one time I was, I remember one time when I was in-house with my flying robot, I was sitting in a chair and we were testing out in a field. And I was, I think, like eight months pregnant. And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a conversation. All of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this robot just flying at me. <laughs> and I jumped off my chair and it ran it right into the chair where I'd been sitting. <laughs> you got you to keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> so Kelly, when these companies come to you and ask for the funding, what are the, kind of the expectations for them to use or for them to build with it? What do you want to see? Yeah, so in general, you raise a pre-seed round and then you're raising your seed round 18 months later. And so in that time, what you need to focus on is go to market. I always say that even two years ago, every Series A deck or every pre-seed deck that came across anyone's table had that one slide that had the number of patents pending because it was all about IP. And I think that's really shifted because especially with the dawning of artificial intelligence, there's a million different ways to solve a problem. And so even if somebody's patented one thing, you can figure out a way around it. And so now go-to-market traction is really king. And I think that's a big mental shift for a lot of founders, particularly those coming out of labs. What are the largest issues that early-stage robotics and artificial intelligence startups, what are they facing? 
So I think the largest issues are the idea of how to get from that pre-seed, that initial check to seed. And what do you have to build in order to be attractive for seed? And when you're analyzing these early stage companies, there are two different components that you look at. You can look at the product and you can look at customer validation. And so that's why focusing in on your beta test and your go-to-market is really important. For the beta test, as companies begin to form and even the most brilliant PhDs, it is not natural to think of how to build a beta test program for commercialization. You tend to think that people will hopefully just wander down the happy path, but really consumers act in ways that you could have never guessed. And then in terms of go-to-market, thinking through your pilot and specifically your pilot contract is extremely important. One of the things we coach people to do is to build very specific metrics into their contract that trigger an automatic rollover. So rather than saying, okay, we'll try it out for six months and if we like it, we'll buy it, that, that doesn't work for the startup. Instead, you say, as soon as we meet these metrics, whenever that happens, you automatically become a customer and baking those in. But you have to do so much customer validation before you can get to that point. So for instance, we had one of our portfolio companies they had been working with this customer for probably six months. They were piloting with them. The customer was thrilled to pieces with the experience, and they had baked two very specific metrics into their contract, but the customer wouldn't sign the contract. And so we said, you need to go back and do more distinct customer validation. And what they found out was one of the metrics was completely accurate, but the second one was this really bizarre revenue-saving method that we could have never guessed in a million years. And it took them almost a month to tease that out of the customer that that was the secondary most important metric. Do you find that some of these established companies try to take advantage of startups in a way? Absolutely. That's the entire point of working with them on these contracts and actually baking in the metrics. And the other thing is too, you can't just even bake in the metrics. You have to be the one giving the data to them. You can't trust them to come back to you. You need to be the one proving it. For instance, one of our companies, Viabot, is an outdoor debris cleanup robot. So essentially every night, like a Zamboni cleans your corporate campuses. You know, a person driving a Zamboni-like thing. And uh, Viabot is a robot that does that. And their very first customer was one of the top three property managers in the United States on one of the largest tech companies and campuses in the entire world. So high stakes. By the way, five guys under 30 in a garage. <laughs> it, one of their parents' garages. And so when we started, we worked with the company and the metrics that we came up with were they need to clean up 80% of bottles and 80% of leaves. And so the way we decided to feed that back to them was we set up cameras along the parking lot and did before and after shots and then overlaid them to be able to prove that they had cleaned up 80%. Then our secondary metric was there had to be no more than one garbage bag full of leaves, right? And so it's these really specific things that they can tell the customer, we met this, now start paying us. But interestingly, I think this is a great example of the stage that pre-seed companies are at now. So all of this that I'm saying and all that work we did was even before I invested. And then when I actually pulled the trigger and invested, they had revenue within one month. How did this company survive that long without funding or did they have some friends and family beforehand? They had gone through Hacks, the hardware accelerator beforehand. And that had been really fantastically interesting because Hacks had sent them to Shenzhen to build their product. And so they'd gone over there to build their product. When they went there, they were originally going to be a, a yard cleanup for leaves for homes. So they were a consumer product when they went there, went into this accelerator. And when they left, they were a commercial product. But because, it's fascinating to me, because they had been trying to be a consumer company, 
they were trying to go as low cost as possible. And they ended up creating this absolutely beautiful robot built from industrial car parts. So it's really tough that their original prototype bomb build materials was $4,000. So you'd mentioned they went to an accelerator program. Is there a lot of those resources for hardware companies? Absolutely. So this is the trend that we're seeing. So the four options before you take in your first institutional fund are grants and labs, angels you know, and friends and family, and then incubators and accelerators. And that's how people survive until they get to institutional. And you'd mentioned Shenzhen as well, Shenzhen, China. Is there a lot of activity going on there for these hardware companies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a place where you can build things much cheaper and the componentry is cheaper. Yeah. You'd mentioned humanized AI. Can you give us more of a description of that and what is it? So humanized AI is the idea that we are moving from robots in cages inside auto plants to things that are going to have to deal with us in our everyday life, right? And they actually have to interact with humans. When you do that, you need to think about what does human interaction look like? And this starts bringing in so many different disciplines. And we're seeing these much more diverse teams, not just in terms of male and female or ethnicity, but in terms of what they studied, philosophy, psychology, all of these sorts of people are starting to get involved in the creation of robots. And I think there's a really interesting way to think about this. One of the Savioke, it was a hotel delivery robot. And one of the stories that they told me at one point was that the thing they were most proud of solving was elevator etiquette. And I love this. I love this because I really think it wraps people's heads around the battles that we face in robotics. And so when you think about getting on an elevator, the doors open and you have to assess the scene and then figure out how to get on without running over a toddler. Then you have to navigate your way to the button pad, press your button, navigate back without running over anyone so that other people can get on. And then when it's your turn to get off, you have to get off and maybe there's people in front of you. And the work they had done there was the thing they were most proud of. And I think that's just so telling. I think that it, a lot of people don't understand what it means to be a robot in the real world. The thing I would say is what that has made me do is every time I see one of those little box robots wandering down the street in Palo Alto or San Francisco, and we get to like a stoplight, and you know, there's only one curb that this thing can go down. Like it can only go down the slanted piece. So I just stand there and see what it does. I'm sure their handlers just love me. <laughs> So you're a hardware VC trolling. <laughs> I just want to see what its etiquette protocol is. <laughs> Before you mentioned that the companies you're invested in are not replacing humans because the jobs that they're doing are already vacant right now, or they're dirty jobs that are dangerous. That Where are people going to see robots taking the place of their jobs right now? Where are we going to see the trends in the future or the first ones that we're really going to see? Yeah, so I think that the first wave that we saw was in like warehousing automation, right? We've seen those for the last several years, and that's a place we've seen a few exits as well. The next wave we believe to be more vertical-centric, construction, agriculture, logistics, industrial, transportation, of course, and then energy and health. It's interesting that you'd mentioned agriculture. I just listened to an interview with Jim Rogers, famous investor, and he talked about the aging population of all these farmers being 68 years old, all retiring, their farms just being pretty much vacated. I mean, what are the robots that are going to come in and do? We're seeing everything from harvesting. There's a lot of strawberry harvesters out there, apple pickers, things like that. That's a lot of what we're seeing on farms right now. In construction, what we're seeing is they're more centric on specific trades. So a lot of these trades that framing, drywalling, those sorts of things that are very specific and require 
a lot of training to do. It's just as you were saying, that population is retiring and getting out of the workforce and it's not being replaced. And so a lot of our companies are actually working really closely with the unions and with job training centers to train up people to be the person that mines the robots on these construction sites. Tell me about some of your portfolio companies. What problems are solving? What's exciting you about them? I already talked about Viabot, which I'm on the board there, so I had a lot of information there. <laughs> but so I, I have two others that I think are worth discussing. So Diligent Robotics is in our portfolio, and they are a hospital delivery robot. They actually made the Time Magazine top inventions of 2019 this morning, so we were very excited about that. But what they do is they deliver supplies to rooms. Now, you've seen these boxes that you can load up and then they roll down the hall. That's always been a thing. But this is an actual robot that goes, scans the room, sees what's missing, wanders down to the supply closet, pulls open drawers with his little hands, pulls things out, and then brings them back to the room. So it's, it's a much more advanced thing. But here's what is the most interesting piece about it. Hospitals not only saw that they were able to deal with some of the problems of labor shortage, so there aren't enough nurses and nurses' aides, but what they saw was a dramatic reduction in falls because nurses were able to focus on their patients rather than having to do some of these more menial tasks like stocking the room. And it's those sorts of things that really get us excited about this industry. So there's another company, and it is not in my portfolio yet. An incredibly exciting company. One of the things that is exciting about it, it is it's run by a woman, one of the very few women running a robotics room. It's called Dishcraft, and it's dishwashing as a service. It's very cool. And they use a hub model, and it's just like uh, uniforms. You have your dirty uniforms in a bin. Someone picks them up and replaces them with clean ones. And that's exactly what they're doing with dishes. The woman running it is this fantastic woman named Linda. She is a, one of the very few repeat entrepreneurs already seen an exit in robotics. Uh, and she's just a rock star. Tell me more because I can't visualize it. So you just... This is so funny. No one can. And so I am constantly bringing people by Linda's office to show them the machine. But essentially what happens is you have a, a large bin that you put your plates on and the plates slowly go down each time so that there's not just a big stack. They go down into their little bin. And then you close the bin, done, and someone comes and rolls it out and rolls in new plates for you. They take the bin and they push it into a large machine and a robot hand picks up the plate, scrubs it, and then puts it into a rack. And then it goes through the sanitizer. Do you have any other stories or you yourself of being a female in this more male-dominated sector? Well, I definitely have some that I probably won't share. But <laughs> the, um, the, I think one of the most interesting ones was that, so I was, working in-house at a company, and I had a very large team reporting to me. And you know, all day I was managing this very large team. And my husband, who is an early adopter, bought Alexa. He hooked up all the lights in our home to Alexa so that you couldn't turn them on or off manually or else you'd mess everything up. And so I'd come home every night after running this huge team and then have to ask my husband to ask Alexa to turn off the lights because she couldn't understand my voice. And this went on for several months where our house was managed by this robot that could not understand me. And I still remember we went on a trip one weekend and came home and suddenly she understood me. And so I had hired some people from the um, Amazon beta testing team and they overheard me complaining about this one day. And they said, oh, don't you know, there weren't any women on the beta testing team. And so they must have not tested frequently for the frequency or tested well enough for the frequency and pitch of a woman's voice. Now I will say, I had the pleasure of meeting one of the founders of Alexa, 
last weekend. And he heavily disputed this. So <laughs> take what you will from the story. What technology out there do you think that we should really look for in the next year or two? I don't think you'll be looking for it. I don't think you'll be seeing it. I think I'm going to answer this question the opposite way. I think that 2020 is not about a social robot that plays with your kids or you know, plays with your dog. We are still in the stage where it is much more interesting to focus on the business to business aspect of things because that's where we're going to see things moving far before we're ready for the more social aspect. And what advice would you give an entrepreneur or an investor out there? I would give them two pieces of advice. Number one, the terminology around fundraising has changed. And like I mentioned before, pre-seed is no longer a PowerPoint. Series A is no longer prototype and pilot. Realizing where you are and not trying to play above your speed. There is no benefit to raising a Series A when you're really a pre-seed or seed company. That really isn't. You will just get a worse valuation if you get funded at all. And then the other piece of advice I'd give that I mentioned before is that go-to-market is an incredibly important piece right now. You are not going to get funded on a patent alone. And then Kelly, is there anything else you'd like to mention before wrapping up? Yeah. So I, I came across a really interesting realization the other day. So when you start pitching a venture fund, you know, you think very carefully about your messaging and you don't want to put off anyone. And so I started raising right after uh, the Me Too movement. And so we thought, oh man, let's lean into this. And so the first people that we were test pitching on were some of the VC names in the Valley. And every single one of these male VCs told us to take that piece of our pitch out, the piece about, you know, leaning into women and who we are. And they said, nobody wants their hands slapped anymore. So we removed that. But it wasn't until I was in a room with one of our investors and she had told me that she wanted to invest primarily in women GPs, but because of that, her portfolio was heavily skewed to consumer and health. And she didn't really have anything at all in deep tech. And that really got me thinking because, and this comes back to kind of the humanized AI topic we were talking about before. Right now, at this exact moment, we are teaching machines what it means to be a human being. That's what we're doing. We're teaching them what that means. And we only have this largely male faces around the table. And this is probably the most important place that we can be inserting women GPs and women entrepreneurs is into this world of teaching machines. We don't necessarily need any more women consumer VCs. We've got that covered. And so I think this is a really important time to be keeping your eyes peeled for diversity and making sure that we're truly teaching these machines correctly. I know that we've already seen instances of racism in artificial intelligence. And even if you're trying to keep your eye on it, unless you have those right faces around the table, you can't think of everything. And while this isn't specific to diversity, the story that I always think about around thinking about everything is Facebook, I believe. They used two different artificial intelligence machines and they told them to haggle with each other. And so they were trying to get to the best deal that was the best for both of them. And within a very short period of time, the machines created their own language because the engineers had forgotten to tell the machines that they had to only haggle in English. And when you think about that, some of the brightest minds just, you know, they forgot that little back door of you have to talk in English. And so because of that, I think it's just a really good example of there is always going to be something you forget. Even if you do an excellent job at building diverse teams and thinking of every angle, there's always going to be something you forget, but you should be doing your best 
to try and avoid that. And the thing that I tell a lot of engineers on this topic is that, or founders rather, every man you hire makes first woman hire harder. When you're a five-person team and you're trying to hire your first woman, that's easy. When you're a 10-person team, it's a little harder. But if you hit 20 and you don't have a single woman on your team, that can be a real problem. Now, when you're saying on your team, do you mean in the top positions or just at the company in general? Ideally, we would want to see a woman in the executive staff meeting, right? Somebody helping drive that decision making. I know that I've rarely seen more than one woman in the executive staff meetings, but even just having one on premise that is hopefully an engineer or someone in tech. I work at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm on the advisory board for computer science. And we spent a long time at our last board meeting talking about women engineers and why so many were dropping out. So the people that they have a really great ratio entering, but then many women drop out. And we were trying to decide why that was. So we brought in one of the female engineers that had dropped out. And she said that anytime you were in the lab past 5 p.m., it just devolved into bro culture. And it, this is great. So the guy sitting next to me said, he raised his hand and he said, what is bro culture? And I just burst out laughing. <laughs> like, you really don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> the thing is, you're working a lot of late nights and you're working together really intensely. The atmosphere is different when it's 49 men and one woman versus 40 men and 10 women. The atmosphere completely changes. The jokes change. And just the way you deal with each other changes. And so I think it's important to realize that even if everyone's trying to be on their absolute best behavior, women can feel a little uncomfortable in environments where they're such a deep minority. This is probably more unique to deep tech, but I think it's an important note. Kelly, this has been an amazing interview and has brought up a lot of topics that I know people at home are going to be thinking about. If they want to find out more information about Grit Ventures or what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? We try and make ourselves incredibly easy to find. You can contact us on LinkedIn. And then on our website, we have our emails on there, gritventures.com. Great. And I also want to thank Hardware Massive, Greg and Matt, who held the event that I saw Kelly at. She was a keynote speaker that led to this interview. And I also want to thank Daniel, who videotaped the interview. So if you want to see pictures of it, join us on our social media, our Twitter, our LinkedIn where you can find pictures from the interview. And once again, Kelly, I want to thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.